So good morning again and welcome to the Lord's house. And I want to say thank you for choosing to worship with us. Um, in this day and age, a lot of folks kind of miss the importance or the relevance of church. And it's good to see folks coming out and to worship the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. That's the really the true reason we're here. I mean, there's fellowship, there's blessings and all those things that come with us being able to meet with each other. The friendships that that are that are bonded and, 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 and deepened through worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. But at the top of that list is to see our Savior high and lifted up. And uh, that's through the singing. That's through just being together. That's through the preaching of his word, allowing his word to do a work in us and through us. Uh, that is that is what we're here for. And we're going to talk a, a little bit about these things this morning. But I want us to begin reading right there in verse number two or verse number one of chapter two. And we're going to focus around the middle of that chapter. But the first part of that, it's, it's hard to read any anything in chapter two without reading that first few verses there down to uh, about the Lord Jesus Christ. But look at verse number one. The Bible says, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any bowels and mercies fulfill you, my joy, that you be like minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself and took upon the, him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself, I could even say even further there, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to preach your word, to gather in your name. Lord, we pray that you bless the reading of your word. And Lord, to help me to convey what you've given to me in my heart, Lord, uh, to help us all as a, as a people, as your people this morning in this community, Lord. Bless us with your presence, your power. Lord, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so verse number 15 again says that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. This morning, I want to talk to you about shining lights, being a shining light. For Jesus. In fact, this is going to be the title of our, our, our message this morning, Shining for Christ, Shining for Jesus. We should be an example. We should be an example to this world, to each other. Spouses should be an example to each other. We should, we should really, if I can put it in, in different kind of terms, we should feed off each other's spirituality instead of other things. We find ourselves quite often feeding off of 
you know, one person's got a bad mood. It's not long before another person gets a bad mood because that person puts them in a bad mood. It's still your choice to be in a bad mood, though. So let's feed off each other's spiritualities or the goodness, the shining part, and be an example uh, to each other. Paul's letter here to the Philippians is a letter about rejoicing. I think we mentioned last week about every seven verses, he says something about rejoicing. Joy in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, or something along those lines. And it's written from a prison. Paul is in prison here. And in this, because of his actions there, he has not allowed the circumstances to take away his joy. I had a preacher back in Tennessee said there's a lot of joy stealers out in this world. They, they want to do things. And sometimes we're... Sometimes I am even that joy stealer. We take joy from other people. But don't let the circumstances change your reason for rejoicing. Paul gives us a great example in that no matter what, God is worthy of our praise. Now I get it. There, there are some times in our lives where it's difficult to lift up the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's difficult to be rejoicing. It's difficult when, when life just knocks us down and, and we feel like, you know, this, this should have been mine or, or I wish my loved one should have, would have had that blessing and it was taken from her or him. And we don't feel like praising God, but it's important that we do. It's in those moments, I think it matters the most that we praise God even when we don't want to praise Him. I've heard a thing about um, children. And when you don't want to hug them is, is when they probably need a hug the most. And when we don't want to praise God, it's probably when we need to praise God uh, the most. And again, I get it. There's times we don't want to do that, but we must do it. We must do it. It, it. it is in those times we must rejoice even more abundantly, more abundantly. You know, if you think about it, anybody can praise God during the good times, right? We can drive, we can drive 15 miles over the speed limit all the way to work and not get a ticket. Woohoo, I'm in a good mood. And I get a ticket on the way there, oh, and now I'm in a bad mood, whatever. We can praise God in the bad times and even the good times. We must always praise Him, always be thankful. Even when the going gets tough, even when life requires more of us than we can give, praise the Lord. What is that that Job said? The Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Praise the Lord. We must always praise the Lord. Through this epistle, again, written from prison, God, through Paul's life, is teaching us how to rejoice more abundantly in Jesus Christ, even when we are at the bottom. In chapter 2, Paul highlights, highlights the fact that we just read there as Christ being our example, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He is our example. As Christians, we should live in unity as unselfish, humble, obedient servants. That's the whole first part of that uh, chapter 2 there. And today we're going to focus, beginning in verse number 12, with the focus that Paul writes, being filled with the Holy Spirit, about being filled with, or being uh, as light shining uh, in the world. And Paul highlights the fact, really, that we, be, we, you and I as Christians, must be a practical example. Again, he's a personal example for us. Being in prison, being you know, not in the most ideal situation, but still rejoicing. He's a personal example, and Christ, of course, is our perfect example. And we are to be an example, not just because. Not just because. I mean, we are followers of Christ. We are followers of He who created this world. That should mean something. We follow Jesus Christ. In verse 15, again, the Bible says that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, 
without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom we uh, ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. In other words, people need to see the life in us. They need to see the light. Many times, even in my life, I look back and I just come to church just because I'm supposed to come to church. But this is where we worship God. This is where we, we get filled, if you will. The, the knowledge that God teaches us through, through the preaching and the teaching and through the singing. We get what we need so we can make it through the week. People need to see Jesus in us. I heard before that many times the only Bible other people will read will be the Bible that we live. Because uh, they won't pick up the Bible and they need to see the light in us. But before we get to this a breakdown of 13 and, and 14, really I want to focus in on 12 and 14. I want to I pull out a couple things here. And first of all, before we can be a practical example of Christ, we must, of course, be a follower of Christ. We must be a, a born-again believer. There's a great theme throughout this whole Bible. It begins with curation, and then certainly thereafter the fall, it's all about redemption. It's all about God redeeming His children. And it ends with, of course, Christ coming out of that grave and that, that ultimate redemption in Christ. And this is the theme that we must have. We must be followers of Christ. We must be born-again believers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul wrote, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him, and him crucified. So no matter what words are from this pulpit or any pulpit around the world, before we can be, before you and I can be a practical example, a light to this world, we must have the light. We must be believers. Our faith cannot be in the wisdom of men. And I know you're probably thinking, well, you're always preaching about this. You're always preaching about salvation. But I'm, I want to be very clear. It is so easy to miss. It is so easy to miss the fact that we are in Christ or not in Christ. There's so many other folks that place our, our faith in the wisdom of men or in the knowledge of man. None of that is based on that. It is based only on what he did on Calvary. We must believe and receive that. And that's it. It's not your church attendance. It's not how faithful you are. It's none of those things. It's based on what he did on the cross. And if my sins are paid for, on the cross, they will never not be paid for anymore. We must put our faith in Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. Please don't miss that. If you don't know for sure, don't leave here today without knowing for sure that you have a home in heaven. God promises eternal life. Eternal life. Make sure you've truly trusted Christ. I hope, again, that each one of us, when we close our eyes in death, we will open them in the face of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We must first be saved to be a practical example, to be a shining light for the Lord Jesus Christ. Never forget, as we go on to these things, there's a lot of ought to's we'll talk about here this morning, but never forget the primary motivation for living right is grace. Is grace. That is our motivation. It's not so we can earn some rights when we get to heaven. It's not that we can earn even, even, even getting into heaven. It is grace. We do things because He loved us. In fact, we can only love Him because he, only loved, because he loved us first. And grace works the same way. Never forget, our primary motivation is Jesus Christ. To please Him. To please Him because of the grace. 2 Timothy 2.4, Paul wrote in his last letter on this earth, Paul wrote, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please Him who hath chosen Him to be a soldier 
So yes, we should live our lives to honor and to bring glory to Jesus Christ. But we do it because He first loved us, because of that grace He has shown us. Remember first, uh, Philippians chapter 1, look at verse 21 in, of chapter 1. He says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Verse 22, But if I live in the flesh, if, if the Lord allows me to tarry in this life, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I choose, I what not, or I know not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. We talked about this last week. That word needful means it was, it was necessary for Paul to stick around those other believers. In other words, they needed him. Paul knew that they needed him. It's not a boastful statement. It's a true statement. Paul realized that I'm committed enough to the gospel, to, to my life for Christ, that others need the light that's in me. They needed him to be a practical example of the Lord Jesus Christ. The people in this community need us. They need us. They need to see us live out our faith. They need to see when life knocks us down, we still rejoice. We still give God the glory. And this begs the question, do the people in my sphere of influence, do they need me? Do they need me? Do they need you? If you were removed from, say, your circle of friends that you saw on a daily basis, would there be less of a light or would there be no change? Do they see God in you? What do you bring to the table, so to speak, for God? God says we should shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Are we shining? Notice that verse 12 begins with the word wherefore, which connects it all, all the way back to all the example we find in Jesus Christ. It's a hinge. It's a hinge because Christ is our example and because we are a follower of Christ, we live a certain way. Again, I'm not here to say you ought to do these things and I'm not here to, it's not a negative message. I'm just trying to highlight the grace and the love and the glory and, the, and all the, the things that we have in Christ as a motivator to live for the Lord, to be that practical example. Look at um, verse number 12 again. It says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Look at this last phrase here. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. Now, this is not working for our salvation. This is working out our salvation. It's not working to get saved. It's working because we are saved. Remember Ephesians 2.8? For by grace are you saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And then the following verse there in chapter, or, or verse 10 says that we are created, after we're saved, we're created to do good works. So our takeaway is that we must yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And the text here is clear that it's God that does a work in us. Look again at uh, verse 13. It is God which worketh in you. You know, many times I, when I go through my life and I look at those, those lives or those days when I'm not victoriously living for the Lord Jesus Christ, it's when I'm trying to do it. But when I allow God to do a work in and through me, those are the days that are victorious. It is God that does the working. It's not Paul. It's not your preacher. It's not your spouse. It's not even you. It is God. 
And, this, and the changes wrought by Paul in his life, or any other person for that matter, are not lasting. What I can do for you is only in this life. What Christ can do through you is everlasting. And we can find great inspiration from others, yes. But it's not so much inspiration that we need. It's incarnation. God in us. To do a work through us. And verse 13 says, It is God that worketh in us to do both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He works in you. He created you. He redeemed you. He gives us the aspirations to accomplish something great for him. And then he gives us the ability to accomplish those aspirations. You know, if we are completely yielded to God, our desires will be of the Lord. The Bible says that if we delight ourselves in the Lord, He will give us His desires. Our abilities will be of the Lord. Our accomplishments will be on the Lord. Again, the, the key is never us. It's never us. It's never, it never has been. The key has always been Jesus Christ and our willingness to be led by the Holy Spirit. You know, many times in my own life, the primary obstacle for me living a godly life is me. It's not other people. It's not circumstances. It's me. I'm in the way of living a right, a right life before God. But we must let go and let God live our lives through us. Let Him turn this mess, if you will, into a message. Not just from a sermon, but through your life. He can turn it all around. You, you would be amazed if you knew a little bit, about, a little bit more about who I used to be. God can change all kinds of things. We must let go and let God. Romans 8.14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit, they are the sons of God. Are you being led by God? It is God that works in us. Let Him guide your steps. Psalms 37 says, The steps of a good man or a good person are ordained by the Lord, and He delighteth in His way. Because Christ is our perfect example, and because it is God who works in us and through us, we should work out our salvation. Look at the end of verse 12 again. With fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. That word work out, I want to just highlight this again about our salvation, that we don't earn it. It's one word in the Greek, and it simply means to perform or to do something. To be, to be the, the action of doing something. To do all, look at it this way. Working in is God doing a work in you, beginning with salvation. Working out is us living what God put in us out in this world. God worked in us for salvation. We work out of that to be a blessing to Him and other folks. Working in is God doing a work in you, and working out is God doing a work through you, both of which require our complete surrender. Therefore, to work out is to do something. It's synonymous to being a practical example. Remember, our salvation should change us. It should change us. Remember the, uh, when Jesus fed the 5,000 and then he talks about, I am the bread of life. If you eat me, you, I mean, all those things were talking about that. You eat the flesh of the Son of Man. They couldn't grasp that because he was speaking spiritual words. Now, his, what he was trying to get across there was when we eat something today, when we go eat a bowl of cereal or a bowl of something really, really good or, or something really, really bad, you know, gives you a, a, a sick stomach or, or gives you strength or whatever, those nutrients from what you ate changes who you are. It, 
It gives you vitamins. It, it changes your, I mean, it chemically changes you. So when we eat, if you will, we believe and receive the Son of God as our personal Savior, there is a change on the inside. And if that change is not there, then we haven't believed and received the way we're supposed to. There needs to be a working out and a, that begins with a working in. We must be new creatures. And as a redeemed child of God, as those new creatures... Again, that working in must occur before a working out. Otherwise, the working out is just, it's just good deeds, which is a blessing in this life, but it goes no farther than this life. Those same deeds that began with a working in will change your life and other people's lives. If there is no change in your life from when you accepted Christ as your Savior, if there is no repentance, if there's no death to self, if there's no resurrection to life in your life, if there's no conviction, there's probably no new creation. And what I believe Paul is trying to convey here is that we should live out our Christian lives, we should work out our salvation because it's real, because it honors God. We are to shine as lights. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The light is shining here. Before this sermon's over, I'm going to be in there somewhere. <laughs> but I believe this shining that Jesus speaks of here before God is connected to the working out of our salvation. It is the shining that we are doing for this world. We are to shine for Christ and then verse 15, look down there again, it says, We are to shine in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. We think about this, like the moon reflects the light. You know, the moon doesn't have its own light, we know this. It reflects the light from the sun in the darkness. We are supposed to reflect the light of the Son of God in the darkness in this world, in context, in a crooked and perverse nation. God, through Paul, is telling us, is telling the Philippians and us to shine our lights. And then he gives us four truths that are applicable today, and we'll kind of go through these things kind of quickly here. But look at verse 12 again. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear. So again, the working out, I'm going to say, is, is akin to shining. So we are to shine with fear. We are to work out our salvation with fear. Now, I want to point out that this isn't some ill fear of our adversaries. This is not, I'm scared of my father. It's not the fear that we would usually understand today. Matter of fact, it's look at verse number, uh, go back to chapter one real quick and look at verse 28. God through Paul is telling the Philippians, telling us and in nothing terrified by your adversaries and nothing terrified. We are to stand firm and we are to strive fearlessly Paul is getting at, for the cause of Christ, because of Christ. And when we live, when you and I live in such a way for the Lord, our disposition, our behavior, it will be an evident token of our salvation. Go back to chapter 1. Let's look at verse 27. He says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, 
that whether I come and see you, that word conversation talks about your your citizenship connected to your behavior or, or, or the other way around, your behavior as you live to be a citizen of Jesus Christ. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel and in nothing by and and, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation. Again, when we live in such a way, our disposition is an evident token of our salvation to the world. It's, it's, a, it's an evidence of our salvation. It's evidence of God. It's a declaration of our faith to others and those around us. So back in verse 12 of chapter 2, God is not suggesting that we live a type of fear where we're scared of everything, a fear of divine disapproval. There are, there are all kinds of Christian, this, Christians in this world that fear disapproval from God. And there is something to be said about that, and we're going to talk about these things, but we don't live in fear. We are more than conquerors. So God is not suggesting that we live in fear, of divine disapproval or fear of losing our salvation. That's not the motivator. God doesn't choose that kind of motivator. He's not some ruthless dictator holding eternal life like on a carrot, you know, in those cartoons there. Hey, you can have it now. If you live right, you can have it now. No, God doesn't work that way. It's eternal life. He didn't say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall have maybe life. Maybe eternal life, maybe temporal life, no, everlasting life. Fear is not God's chosen motivator for those who are His children. What kind of father leads that way? What kind of father leads with fear? No, grace is God's motivator. Grace is God's motivator. The fear Paul writes of here is reverent fear. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And Romans 3.18, uh, one, one of the characteristics of the unrighteous and those who are given over to a reprobate mind is that ha they have no fear of God. There's no fear of God before their eyes. So it's not, this is not what God's talking about here. Friends, I'm afraid that we live in a world today where there is simply no fear of God anymore. As Christians, you and I should have an incredibly high reverence for God. You know, the Bible says that he should be preeminent there in Colossians chapter 1. That means he's the Alpha and Omega. He's on his own list. It's not, it's not God and then my spouse and then my children. He's on his own list all by himself. I can honestly say that my wife is number one to me. But God is preeminent. Jesus Christ is preeminent. He must be my all in all and he must be yours as well. Have a, fear, have a healthy fear for God. It should change our perspective on everything. The type of godly fear that we are talking about here is behavior modifying. Behavior modifying. It changes who you are from that working in. We who claim to be followers of Christ should have the deepest reverence for our God. For our God. A reverence that modifies our behavior at the core. It's not an outward, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this because other people see me serving God. It's something I do from inside because of the reverence I have for God. We must shine with fear. Our behavior should always reflect our belief. May you and I do all things with great reverence to God. 
And then notice verse 12 again. He says, not only do we shine or work out our salvation with fear, but also with trembling. With trembling. Now, that word trembling, again, is not a reference to a typical fear of one's enemies. You know, you kind of you kind of fix, you know, somebody shake in because you're scared. But it is a fear of relation to pleasing God, not because he's going to punish us, but because we love him. Strong defines this word trembling, strong concordance. Get this now. The anxiety of one who completely distrusts his own ability to meet all requirements, but religiously does his utmost to fulfill that duty. I'm going to read that again. What does trembling mean? The anxiety of one who completely distrusts his own ability to meet all requirements, but religiously does his utmost to fulfill that duty. How does this relate to trembling? Well, the perspective is that we should care so much about pleasing God that we tremble because of our inability. Again, it's not simply a fear of failing, but a fear of failing God. As we live our lives, you know, we meet a lot of people. So I know you're probably thinking, well, I said this about one thing and now I'm kind of going backwards against that. But Bear with me here. Let me let me let me get this across here. There there are some people probably in your life, hopefully in your present, that you really never want to let down. They are your heroes, your role models. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe maybe it's your best friend, your parent, whatever it may be. But there is an innate fear, if you will, of letting them down. We see a lot in, in, in professional sports and other places like that, a fear of not measuring up. Again, maybe they were superiors or are peers or subordinates, a previous or uh, a commander or a present commander, a pastor, a parent. It doesn't really matter who that is, but there is a desire that we want to be our best for them. I have a, a pastor friend of mine. He is the first pastor for me as an adult. I came back to Christ in my late 20s and I went to this church and that pastor poured his life into me. And he's still a good friend of me. And even when I write an email to him, because he's very articulate about a lot of things. One of those is English. And I'll make sure that I got all my I's dotted and T's crossed and I got the colon in the right place, whatever, you know. So I want to, and I know he's not going to care about the thing at all, but I know he's going to recognize it. And that's just a, a silly example, I guess. But we should have those kind of people in our lives that we look up to. You know, have you ever set out to accomplish a task, maybe for your spouse, and somewhere along the line, you know, somebody that you respect and you have this fear of not letting down. But somewhere along the line, you realize that what you started for that person, you're not capable of finishing. I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, my wife turned a certain age. Um, <laughs> this is recorded. I'm not, I'm not silly, right? She turned a certain age and she likes cheese, cheesecakes and she can make a pretty good cheesecake. And uh, so I decided to make a cheesecake for her. And uh, so I did all those things. And as it's in the oven, you know, we're, we live in Germany. My wife's born and raised in Berlin. So at, at the clock strikes midnight, it's happy birthday time. You know, you're bringing out the cake. It doesn't matter how tired you are at the midnight, we're, we're celebrating, right? And I forgot a, 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 an important ingredient called flour. <laughs> and it's in there baking and it just dawned on me while it's in there. I'm like, oh. And there was no time. It's like 10 o'clock at night. You know, she's already in bed, I think. And. But it actually didn't turn out. I don't know if you all remember it back there, but it didn't turn out half bad. I mean, she knew that there was no flour in there, but I wanted to make it so right. And that's, I think, what the Lord is talking about here. We want to live a life that's so right for that person that we that we just 
try to do, I, I missed a flower, of course, but we try to do everything right to get it exactly the way that that person wants it. I didn't tremble when I presented the cake, <laughs> but I really wanted it to be right. I wanted to please her. And again, this is similar to what Paul is getting at. There should be some spiritual trembling before God about getting life right. There's a healthy fear. This is a healthy fear about not letting God down in the way we live our lives. And if you think about that, how far are we removed from that? How far are we as Christians removed from living a trembling life before God? Not, not because, again, he's not that ogre up there saying, I'm going to crush you if you don't do this, but because we love him and, and the kind of the mindset of making a cake for him, if you will. We often respond with when we fail that day, well, nobody's perfect. <laughs> I don't think that's the intent. Even in sports, I've, I've mentioned this already, I kind of alluded to it, even in professional sports, we had a, a, a family in this church before, the Davis family. If they're listening to this, they'll, they'll see that. But they had, all of their children, all of their boys were phenomenal at sports. And I can't remember which was, what his name was, but he was a young man and they lost the game. And he cried. He cried because they lost the game. And at first you're thinking, oh, you know, what a, what a weirdo. But he gave his all. That, was, that game was his. He wanted it. And even in professional sports, there have been full-grown adults. Y'all have probably seen them on television crying when they're the one who missed the goal that could have won the game. In their minds, they let their team down. Now, what do you think if, if this happened? You know, Ronaldo, I had to Google who's the most popular sports player in the world, so I hope you know Ronaldo. He's the soccer player guy. What if you think he was there on the game, right? He's getting ready to kick the, the ball, the winning game, there's... Uh, you know, there's no more, no more to play. He gets this, he wins. He don't get this, he loses. And he kicks it, and he misses, which probably wouldn't happen, right? But say he did, and he walks away. Oh, well, nobody's perfect. I mean, how do you think that would go across with his team? They, they probably wouldn't take that very well. And he might not be on the team if that attitude continued like that. Well, maybe, because he's pretty good. But anyway, but there is a trembling that's inside of him, probably even before the games. And that same trembling needs to be in our lives before God. Now, I'm not saying we need to live a life of fear. I want to get that across. But that trepidation that you have, I mean, we've all played sports before. That trepidation when you're sitting on the bench before the game starts, those butterflies, maybe as your wife's coming to the altar, I hope I'm doing the right thing. Those, that fear, that's the fear that we should have, that trembling as we live our life before God. It's good for us. It's healthy. It keeps us honest. It keeps us Holy. For some Christians, I dare say even me from time to time, certain sins easily beset us. And it's almost as we sin, you know, we live that life and we say, oh, well, nobody's perfect. But now we try to live a, a sinless life. I know, I, I get it. None of us are perfect. But our apathy gets to us sometimes when we realize that, well, I'm not perfect, so I'm probably going to sin. But you know what? It's all under the blood. True statement. It is under the blood. But we need that trembling back. You know, we should not sin knowing that God forgives us. It's, it's encouraging to know that He does forgive us, but that's not a license to not live right. Many so-called Christians, and even me for most of my life, have lost what it means to tremble before God. 
Romans 5.20 says, Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And we just hold on to that one. But in Romans 6, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. So our takeaway is that we should serve God with the very best of our ability, and we should care very much about how we live our lives as Christians. We must work out our salvation. We must shine with fear and with trembling. But look at verse 14. I want to jump down there. There's a couple things he says that we shouldn't do. He says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. We should shine without murmuring. I almost wanted to put muffle our murmuring, but it didn't go with the alliteration. You know, murmuring is defined as secret discontentment. Secret discontentment. It's really just complaining, grumbling. It's akin to talking behind one's back. It's just something we shouldn't do as Christians. We should not be known as busybodies, as complainers. That's, that's a hard thing. That takes an active, cognizant, deliberate decision to, to not do these things. Because we all have that. We hear something, somebody tells, oh, you hear about him? Oh, yeah, that rascal. You know, just going right on to it. Just make sure that we're doing words that are edifying. I kind of have this mindset where now, of course, I'm not the end all be all perfect example. But I'm, I try to get to the habit. If I'm talking about somebody, I would not say something not in their presence that I wouldn't say in their presence. If that makes sense. Right. If I'm going to talk good about them or bad. Try not to talk about bad about them. But I must say the same thing that I, I'd be willing to say the same thing in front of them and probably should say the same thing in front of them if we want to be honest. We should not be known as busybodies or complainers or backbiters or gossipers or all these things. We should not be known as murmurers or complainers. Have you ever met that person who complains about everything? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> or have you ever been that person that complains about everything? Also, don't raise your hand. I have. Sometimes you get in those days when something goes wrong and then everything's wrong. Right? It doesn't matter. I mean, you got a red light that day. Oh, what in the world? How did the Lord get me stopped at this red light? You know, everything. You want to complain about everything. We let life get in the way sometimes, and all we can see is the negative. And that's exactly where the devil wants us. Remember Genesis chapter 3? You know, God says all these things, don't, 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 don't. And he gives them all these blessings of what they eternal life, walking with God. I mean, perfect sinlessness. And the devil comes along and just focuses on the negative, what they cannot do. God gave you all these things, but look at what he kept from you. The negative. The same tricks are happening today. When the negative goes in our life, the devil feeds off of that and he, and he destroys us. He tears us apart. Don't be negative. Don't be that person that complains because that's exactly where the devil wants us. And I'm not saying we shouldn't stand up for things. We shouldn't speak out when things need to be spoken out for. But we should be known more as praisers and not protesters. We should be known as those who praise God and instead of those who complain about this world. Simply put, murmuring. I think this is the, the simplest thing. I probably could have just said this without all those other things. Murmuring is not a fruit of the Spirit. It's not a fruit of the Spirit. Remember the Israelites? They murmured against Moses, against God numerous times. One time, well, the first time, three days. Three days after they got into, uh, after they left, after God parted the Red Sea, three days they were murmuring. In fact, one of the reasons they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years was because of their murmuring. 
And truthfully, I, I don't like preaching on these things here too long about what we shouldn't do. I want to preach on what we should do. But I do think that if we have a desire to shine our lights in this perverse, this crooked world, then we need to muffle our murmuring and control our disputing, which goes to the next point. We should shine without disputing. Do all things without murmuring and disputings and disputing. This, of course, goes right along with murmuring. In fact, one usually leads to the other. The Greek word for used for disputing is defined as arguing, arguing with or questioning the truth of those in authority. Disputing. You know, somebody gives an order, even an order that's an amoral order, you know, go take out the trash or something like that. Well, why don't he go take out the trash? You know, that's disputing. Uh, and the Bible says we shouldn't do these things. I think I've asked this before, but have you ever argued with someone knowing that the other person is right? Yeah, I've done. It's usually my spouse. And, you know, then you learn halfway through. The, sometimes you learn it halfway through. I'm like, man, she is right. How do I get out of this? <laughs> but have you ever argued with yourself about doing the hard right over the easy wrong? I am a master at convincing me that sin is good. I think we all are. We see something that's that's wrong. We know we shouldn't do it. You know, eat, whether it's eating that other that next muffin that you shouldn't eat. Maybe you shouldn't eat the first one. I don't know. But, you know, it's early. You know, I got 500 steps in today. I mean, I, I can take this this other thing. And, and we, we we rationalize these things in our lives. That's disputing when it when it when it comes with sin and all those things. Deliberating within ourselves and justifying that a wrong is right. Arguing against the truth, arguing against what is right, and the act of convincing yourself that a wrong is right, all that kind of falls under disputing, and we are not to do these things. Murmuring, I think this is an interesting point, but murmuring and disputing is not a mark among free and happy people. You don't murmur when you're happy. You don't dispute when you're happy. Murmuring and disputing is a mark of people who are oppressed or enslaved. This is not us. Jesus said in John 8, 36, If the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. We are free people. We don't have to murmur. We don't have to dispute. You know, when a certain football teams, maybe you get your favorite football teams, uh, and they win the Super Bowl, those on the winning team, usually not murmuring and disputing. What do you think about the other team? Lots of, oh, man, that, it was in, that was inbounds, out of bounds, whatever, you know, on and on and on, murmuring and disputing. It's the losing team. Disputing and murmuring is a mark of the losing team, but we are not losers. Praise God. The Bible says in 837, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We are on the winning side. I've read the end of the book. We win. We're on Jesus' side. He is our victor, and we are victorious because of Him. Great reasons and many thousands of millions of reasons to live a life that brings Him glory, to shine His lights, to be a practical example to others around us. So we are to work out our salvation with fear, with trembling, with murmuring, without murmuring, without disputing. We are to shine for Jesus Christ. Why? Look at verse 15. That ye may be blameless... And harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights. We 
are to shine for Christ because we are the sons of God. We are the children of God. And we should be blameless. That word blameless doesn't mean sinless. It means above reproach in every area of our lives. Never put yourself in a position where others have to trust you completely. That's being above reproach. You're going to find yourselves in, that, in those positions just because of life, but never choose to be in that position. Keep yourself above reproach. We should be harmless, honest, without rebuke, so we can shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. As we kind of prepare here in a moment to sing our invitation, I believe God has one final overall question for us as we kind of come to a close. For His children, this is for His children now, those who are saved, does your light shine? Does your light shine for Christ? Are we, as a church, shining for the Lord Jesus Christ? Is the spotlight in our life on us, or is it on Him? Are we reflecting Him? Is the working out of your salvation evident in your life? Are you recognizable as light? Most of us live our lives as covert Christians. That is not what the Lord wants from us. He wants us to shine, to let our light shine before men. Are we recognizable as a light? And for those of us, those of y'all who have not accepted Christ, you've don't, you cannot remember a time when you knowingly and deliberately accepted Christ as your Savior. Let God do a work in you. Let Him save you. Receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. And wherever we are, whether we're saved or lost, the answer is Jesus Christ. Come to Him. Know that He loves you and that He will take you just as you are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.